so much that it just brought out just all that energy. That, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've already begun recording. I was trying to get a couple of gems, see if we could do that, because I like throwing in like a random deleted scene at the end of our movie. The deleted scene, Adam flips on the way <laughs> for Father's Day gift. I gotta tell you, if, if we go an episode without saying some bad shit about a wife, I mean, right. what are we even doing here? Well, I yeah. hate my wife, so that's where that, that comes from. Yeah, why not? She hates me too, so it's fair. That's, but, that's weird. But that wedding was beautiful. It was a great wedding. <laughs> It's a beautiful wedding. Yeah, it's strange. That's like cross generational, you know, because you're you're practically a millennial because you guys have no mm. no kids together and you have a, a dog sure. that's supposedly supposed to pick your nursing home when you guys retire. <laughs> and uh, but then you also don't like each other, which is kind of like a boomer uh, characteristic. Yeah, we like to uh, yeah spread it out a little. You know, we don't want to be too. Oh, I can't think of the word, but you know, stereotypical, I guess. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's why you have a beard. Yeah, well, it's not. Yeah. As, not as nice as it was though. Yeah, we're just no. two guys and a mic. Yeah, no beards. No beards. Well, now it's three beards and two mics. Yeah. Hey oh. So way to totally bulldoze competition. <laughs> <laughs> they can never keep up with three beards and two mics. They're gonna have to double their beards. I don't want to think about how they can do that, but we'll just <laughs> we'll just move on to the next topic. So, when did you meet the ginger ale? I buy things that so I can mix. That's what I do. Because there are times when my wife's like, why are you getting lemonade? And I was like, well, that goes well with Jack Honey. Mm. <clears throat> what? what? I've never had, never had lemonade with Jack Honey. Nope, that's not... I, lemonade goes good with vodka. Any kind no, of vodka. I like putting la lavender in it. I lavender with lemonade is terrific. I don't, I don't think I can stand by that one. We definitely disagree. I'll have to try it out. I've actually only ever had like Jack Honey or um, <clears throat> any honey whiskey straight. Yeah. Just like at a gig or something. Yeah. If, if you want to drink but you don't want to wreck your voice because uh, you're singing a lot, then then that's a pretty good. That or like like a raspberry vodka with lint tonic or like something like that. That'll uh, something that doesn't burn too much. But then if you got like water, it's sort of like yeah out. yeah. No, I never thought about that. Like what drinking can do to your throat, you know, if you're a singer or yeah. if you do like stand up. Yeah. I'm assuming, if you, you know, you're talking too much, doing an hour gig. That's true. Yeah. Anyone in those positions really runs a risk of causing sometimes permanent damage to their voice. And um, that's one of actually sort of been one of my long term problems that you can even probably hear in my voice is that I talk way too much and I sing a lot. And I don't give myself the vocal rest that I need. Um, a few years ago, I was in speech therapy for a while, um, just to learn how to speak and sing in a way that, that wasn't too harsh. Um, and that's, yeah, comedians, singers, and teachers. Teachers all the time have to, um, you know, they get scoped and they get their, their throats looked at. They'll develop polyps and nodules and need throat surgery and, and stuff like that. A lot of my teacher friends, they said, you know what's great about the quarantine is I'm starting to get my voice back. <laughs> it's funny. You don't really, you really don't think of something like that. No, like, I ever. I never with thought the teacher, of teacher, especially. Yeah, how usually, much they yell and scream at kids. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's just raising the voice. But even that, like you're, having your voice at an elevated volume is, is no good for it, especially for a prolonged period of time. 
Um, usually when you think of like the hazards of being a teacher, um, well, what do I think of? Now you're the G teacher. You're germ germs and disease, you know, yeah. passing around the flu. There was one yeah. point in February that over a quarter of our student body was out, I think it was January, uh, maybe beginning of February, uh, over a quarter of the student body was absent because they were sick. Mostly the flu, but strep throat and then other illnesses. Um, <clears throat> no COVID though. No, no, not yet. Or who knows? Maybe COVID was already here. You know, they're yeah. talking about it possibly came into California far earlier um, than February, March time. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. But the but that's, yeah, one of the things, you know, teachers, especially when you start teaching, that's usually when you get really sick um, because you just haven't built up the immunity to all the garbage that the little Petri dishes or the cute little Petri yeah. dishes yeah. are carrying well, around. Well, how how old are the kids you deal with? Um, well, as young as three, and then, well, as old as college, you know, generally, but college, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. Um, so, I also, I do music enrichment at a, a preschool called the Goddard School, which is in Bellingham, um, near Franklin. Mm -hmm. And those kids are about three years old to five years old. And so, that that's the youngest. And then I do elementary and middle um, for my, my regular teaching job. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, I'd say, you know, the, the only hazard. And, uh, as far as I can tell, maybe getting in trouble with the principal. I could, oh. I could never be a teacher. But that actually surprised someone. I said, oh yeah, you know, like, you would be careful not to upset the principal, make sure you're doing everything. And they're like, what, you're scared of the principal too? I said, yeah, she's my boss. I was just going to ask that. Is, like, you, is the principal, like, the boss? Like, you know, like, most jobs have a supervisor or a manager. Is that how the principal is seen? Y yes, yeah. I mean, thankfully, we have, like, our principal is really good. I've, I've heard horror stories of um, principals that were, like, if you're, if you're a principal, it's almost like you're, like, the general of an army, you know, and... <clears throat> That's about as far as the analogy can go. Um, I'm not saying like, I'm not saying being a teacher is like being in a war and like, you know, the kids are the, right, like, you know, right, the, right. Uh, the um, but I do mean that in the sense of like, you have a, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, you know? And so you need to manage people to always be on top of their stuff. Um, because if you're not, you know, it could be anything like what if, so let's say we go on a field trip. And in order to go on a field trip, I need permission slips from all the parents. Mm -hmm. And I have to have that in order and have them sign liability slips. If right. one of those aren't done, uh, the student can't go on the field trip. So what happens if maybe I don't have that together? A student brings maybe one or the other. I let them go on the field trip. Something happens. Boom. The school's responsible. Right? right? So, the, so the principal has a tough job in which, like... You don't want to be mean, but it, it might be like, hey, Adam, you know, we didn't get a permission slip from this person. Um, you know, they're going to have to stay with their homeroom teacher or something like that instead of going on the field trip. So a, a principal has to have their tendrils in like 2,000 different things in order to keep the ship running. And now, obviously, you hope you have competent teachers and people who know what they're doing. So you're not, you know, so it's not like you're just like juggling in midair. Um, but yeah, I definitely wouldn't want the, the position of principal. We have a really, like our principal is really kind and, um, 
<clears throat> thankfully, like, you know, things are pretty laid back at, at our school. Uh, it's a private school, so it's not subject to a lot of the same issues and red tape that other schools are. For instance, when the quarantine happened, we were down two days, and then we started virtual learning the following day. And as we're public schools, they run into a lot of issues of, um, well, things like equity. And so if you're a public school teacher and you have to do virtual learning, you have to guarantee, in a sense, that all students will learn and progress at the same rate. Right. Because otherwise, like, that imbalance is essentially an injustice. But our school, we knew students were fitted with Chromebooks, that they all had the technology that they needed. Um, but that's Greenville, Rhode Island. You know, if you're comparing that to Pawtucket or, or really any other town, any town has to, you know, we didn't, we didn't have issues of this student doesn't have internet access. So we have to figure out a way to get them a Verizon hotspot or something. Mm-hmm. All, all students had internet access and they had a device by which they could do their, their assignments. You know, parents all drove, you know, they all had cars, right? So, right. so it's a little on the wealthier side. So you don't, you don't run into those issues. Um, as were some schools, I know, even the town I work in, Hingham, which is an extremely wealthy town, um, they had, I think it was four or five weeks before they rolled out their virtual learning. And so now they're like, they're way behind the curve. They can't extend school into the summer right. because you're only contracted up until mm-hmm. a certain date. Usually it's like June 19th or June 25th or something that, um, you know, the unions won't allow teachers to work past that point. Um, and so those students, they, they lose out on that. Why was there a five-week layoff? Like, mm. I, don't, I don't get that. Well, I think, so one of the things they have to do, Rhode Island did this when they were talking about being quarantined. Um, they were having, actually before this, before the quarantine was put into effect, the Rhode Island Department of Education was asking teachers to submit lesson plans that guaranteed equity. Okay. <clears throat> and so... Um, you can't, until you can assure that the Mexican student who doesn't speak English can learn the same way that your wealthiest, smartest student can, um, then you can't really teach, you know, at least according to state guidelines. Right. Um, I don't know how much I agree with that. And since I don't speak for the public schools, I can be critical of them in that sense and not worry about losing my job. Um, because I don't think that's, I think that's in a way failing your smartest students because now those students have to have their learning impeded while we wait so that we can all rise up together, um, and have sort of like, uh, synchronous upward mobility in education together. But what I think would be best is the students that can get them going and then you can pool your resources to getting those, you know, like, like, why can't they happen at the same time? And I think part of it is, well, it's the issue of equity, you know, this kind of like everyone having an equal opportunity at the same time. And then if one person can't, then no one can. Um, I haven't thought about it that deeply, but I, I'm not sure that I agree with it. But, but I can see why they do it. Yeah, it's understandable, but uh, yeah, I have some thoughts on that too. As as you're speaking, I'm thinking in my own head, like, uh, I think it's one of the biggest problems in education in America is we hold the smart kids back for the kids who aren't as smart. 
not saying that they're they're dumb, but they don't learn as easy mm-hmm. or they haven't learned on their own. But you have some kids who are leaps and bounds, well above yeah. other kids, and now they're waiting, especially with the virtual learning, they're just waiting and bored. Right. And no, I feel but, like that's always been a problem in America. Right, yeah. Even long before this, mm-hmm. I think it was um, August 2006, and we can we can fact check this, I suppose. Do we have, are the live fact checkers online? Jay's Google, Google corner. Oh, okay. Let's get to Google. So it was Time Magazine. It was 2006. I think it was August, and it was... Um, how we're failing our smartest students was the name of the, uh, was the it was it was actually the front page of of Time Magazine and um, it was it was the featured article and um, August two thousand six you could at least put two thousand six and we could figure out the month it's only been fourteen years since I read it but we'll see if uh, fourteen we'll years. see how oh my god it looks like uh, that Time Magazine article was written in August two thousand seven. Oh, oh year off. very close. Very oh, close. gosh. Looks like it's, uh, are we failing our geniuses? Yeah, and so that was, um, yeah, so basically what it was saying is that a lot of educational resources are pooled at the bottom. Yes. And we don't, uh, we're not really in the business of cultivating talent, and we're more in the business of maintaining the status quo for the talent, and then raising test scores and things like that, you know? And there are students who struggle, right? And so, like, you need to you need to have more teachers, you need to have more aides, you need to have more special ed programs and things like that because <clears throat> not just for the quality of it that, you know, they need to be brought up, but for their long-term health. And people who, who struggle academically either because of their temperament, they're lazy, they're uninterested, something like that, or because of their... A particular disability, um, having um, having educational resources that are calibrated towards increasing their intelligence or their IQ um, makes an enormous difference in, in their adult life uh, as well. And you see it even with, with kids who are autistic. That's why early intervention is such a big thing, because if you do that, they can lead normal jobs, they can be extremely productive members of society, they can um, be suitable partners and raise families and stuff like that, and without any of that, and and that's that's pretty self-evident, otherwise these entire industries wouldn't exist, you know, if they didn't, if they didn't really present a, um, an enormous value for, for these people, and without that, without fulfilling work, you just... I mean, you just end up with a bunch of depressed people who aren't really good for much. Um, and there's... <laughs> yeah, cheers. Yeah, cheers to that. <laughs> so... <laughs> but... And there's there's interesting studies that, have, that surround that, you know. I think it was 1918. Maybe we could do this again through Google. That the, uh, the U.S. Army uh, started developing the idea of IQ. You know, so that's got about a hundred years of science behind it. And one of the things that I believe in the early nineties that they had determined at that time was that if you had an IQ that was lower than 83, there was no job that you could do, um, that you wouldn't be completely counterproductive at. And I don't know if it was like even sweeping the barracks, you know, right. you just snap the handle and stab yourself. And I, yeah, like, I, I'm not sure what the specifics are, but if your IQ is, was lower than 83, um, then 
there was no job out there for you, you know, and, and which is an inter- interesting take because if you see how that issue is sort of bifurcated politically, Republicans seem to think that there's a job out there for everyone. And Democrats think, well, any person could do any job if only they were trained for it right. um, or educated. <clears throat> and But the idea is that there, there is a, a percentage of the population that um, wouldn't really be suited for any job. And, those, and so those are the people that you want to lift up so that way they can increase in intelligence and increase in aptitude so they can, um, can be useful, not for our sake, but also for their sake. Um, and so those, uh, it's like what percentage of the population has an IQ under 83, it's, it's about eight to 10%, you know, so that's, it's a, it's a lot of people. It's higher than you would think. Yeah. And, uh, I think the average maybe rests around a hundred or one, or one ten, you know, one, about 140 to 145 is genius territory, you know, 125. And so you're, you're really above average. Um, so it's not that far below average to have an IQ of 83, um, but so that's anyways, we're, we're sort of getting off track, but that's fine. so what we do, yeah. so we are saying a lot of the resources are getting pulled towards the bottom, mm-hmm. which is good. Like I mentioned, you know, but those students, um, what you might call gifted students, those are, you know, those are the ones that go on to cure coronavirus. Right. And, yeah. and so those are, those are the students that you want to make sure you're not letting them just be academically excellent, you know, or be your valedictorian or, you know, maybe get into Quinnipiac, right? But you want them at the top of Harvard, you know, and and there's a reason why the students that end up at the top of Harvard, many of them have similar backgrounds because they were, you know, they went, maybe they went to a private school that was expensive and had the funding for the kind of programs that, that would help them really reach their potential. Um, usually they come from extremely privileged backgrounds and, you know, a, um, the son of a stockbroker who lives in Weston, um, you, you can't say that the, the young boy in living in the slums of South Detroit had the same opportunities that he had. And, um, unfortunately we think that way sometimes, uh, especially, especially if you're right leaning, I, I do lean, I do lean a little to the right. Um, but and so sometimes they think, well, America's a land of opportunity. You know, if only you applied yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like you have no idea what kind of upbringing people have. And so even within a, a state as small as Rhode Island, you see you see an enormous disparity. I'm very lucky to you know to work for a you know I live in a great town. I work in a beautiful town. I also teach in a wonderful town um, where there is uh, a lot of earned advantage. And I don't want to just call it privilege, like, like it just fell out of the sky, but, um, there's an, an earned advantage and it's, it's an area that I think I'm suited for. Um, I don't, I didn't come from a privileged background. Um, you know, I basically started on rock bottom and it was downhill from there, but the, uh, but the, you know, but, but kids who have, who really have, have you know, something to offer, but just need a, a little nudge in, in either direction. I think, you know, I've sort of like found my calling in that sense. Um, <clears throat> although I love, you know, I love going down to, to Guatemala and, and Central America and visiting the orphanages and, and working down there and, and with those students, uh, or those kids anyways. I don't do teaching down there. That's more just like working at the, uh, the compound, but um, stuff like that. 
I don't know. I'm just a people person. I just want everyone to like to grow, move forward, and excel um, because we all have something to offer, and <clears throat> we're. It, I, I think it's a it's a, it's an absolute crime. It is it is an ethical crime to rest on our laurels and just watch whatever potential we have deteriorate because we've psyched ourselves into some sort of false reality where it can't be achieved. Um, <clears throat> and maybe it can't be achieved, right? But it's not it's not always about the destination. You know, sometimes it's it's really about the journey and where that journey takes you. Um, and that that's what I've noticed anyways. I'm not where I wanted to be when I was 20. You know, I didn't picture my, my early 30s being like this. Um, and, but one of the things I noticed was that my dreams got bigger. And although I didn't achieve the big dream I had in mind, a bigger dream presented itself. And so, like, as you move towards the thing you're after, which, by the way, a prerequisite of that is actually moving towards the thing you're after. But as you move towards the thing you're after, the the picture gets clearer and like the light shifts. You know, it's like, oh, well, I thought it was here straight in front of me, but now it's actually over here to the left. And it's not what I, it's, it's not actually what I thought I saw here. It's a clearer picture and it's actually more beautiful and elegant than I imagined, you know? <clears throat> and it is the, it's the action that precludes the inspiration. You're not inspired to act. You have to act first. And again, we're, we're kind of off topic, but, but that's, um, I think that that's, that's a message a lot of people need to hear. I don't think people are, are encouraged to actually go out and, and, and do something. I think that's why, you know, guys like, um, the Vayner Media guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, um, folks like that, Tony Robbins, all those guys who like, they kind of get up and they're like, Hey, you gotta do this. You know, well, why do they have like hundreds of thousands of views? You know, cause people just aren't saying mm -hmm. like, Hey, here's like a simple way you can hustle and you can make a good part-time income without having to punch a clock and you can do it on your own time. But just using like going to yard sales and using Craigslist or something. And, and, um, you know, here's, here's a, a little way to sort of know who you are and what makes you tick and what makes you do the things you do. So you can, so you can double down on your strengths and overcome your weaknesses. Um, there's, there's just not a lot of people who are, who are saying that, that kind of thing. And it's, it's so necessary. And because there's, well, cause I, I don't think there's really anything that's, that's going to sustain us, you know, against what's to come. And I think we're, I think we've been comfortable for a long time. We haven't been driven by necessity and by hunger. And now we're realizing that, you know, the house of cards is starting to fall and, and things might get really difficult and really challenging. And when that, when that occurs, that's not the time to start being on your A game. That's not the, you know, that's not the time to start giving a hundred percent. That time is now. And that's, that's the idea that's existed in our greatest stories for millennia. Um, it's in, you know, it's just watching like an anime today. Um, what was it? The name of it's My Hero Academia, but <clears throat> it's like any other anime or superhero story. And what happens is you have y your protagonist, he's training, he's maybe trying to be the strongest. He's also kind of, maybe it's coming of age, he's learning who he is, he's discovering his power, you have all of that. But at some point, 
the conflict arises in the story. There is someone who is just stronger than he is. You know, it's like, it's never, the conflict's never like, you know, the scrawny guy comes along and he's like, I'm going to kill you. And then he pummels him, right? It's like, because I want to be much of a story, right? That doesn't resonate with what we know, like deep in, in our spirits. And, and so the guy comes along, he's generally like stronger. You don't know how he's going to pull it off, but he pulls it off. And in doing so, raises himself to some new level, right? It's like, there's... There's a chasm between protagonist and powerful antagonist. You could even call it like the field of proximal development, right? He destroys the antagonist and then he grows as a character, discovers new things about himself, right? And it's like, and, and what happens if, you know, if the music's good and the, and the uh, animation or filming cinematography is good, then we get goosebumps, we're like clapping. It's like all of that. It's like, it, it, it's like the Pats 28 and 3 against the Falcons, right? You, you watch like a miracle occur someone steps beyond beyond the bounds of their own competence into the domain of chaos and establishes order right in front of your eyes and you just can't believe it it's like no way right and the reason why i think it affects us at such like a base level is because we know it to be true you know whether we admit it or not whether we can articulate it or not there's something there that at a very deep level we recognize like that's what the world needs. The world needs to, you know. I'm not saying the Falcons were evil; they were, but <laughs> they. Um, but it is. It's that same kind of overcoming that inspires us and like tells us to to seek out what we can do in in ourselves in that same manner. And like in the you know superhero movies and in the, the animes and all that, as cheesy as they might be, there is still that very old archetypal story that um, that really resonates with, with our nature and with, with, I think, the oldest parts of ourselves, which is if you pull yourself together and you put everything you have into what you could be, when the time comes that that's going to get tested, um, then you'll, even if it's, beyond you you'll already be equipped because you're already in the natural state of going beyond where you are you know if you're just going to be like latent and placid and just inert all day and then that comes along you're just gonna you'll get flattened you know and 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 that happens to people all the time you know people they something happens they lose their job and they're like oh well now what the hell am i supposed to do i've worked there 10 years i don't i don't have any of the marketable skills and i'm in a field that's that's slowly dying and it's hard to get a job and it's like, boom, they're just steamrolled. There's, there's just no hope at that point. And, and I think it's, it's because we, we kill off parts of ourselves by not allowing them to grow um, so that we can have something that's lasting and meaningful and sustaining when the hard times uh, come. And they will come, right? And that's, and that's the warning. So it's like a, a message of an encouragement. It's a, it's a hearkening, um, but it's, it's also a like a like a, a caveat you know in a, a message of concern <clears throat> that you got to be careful because if you live your life that way um there's there's nothing that's that's going to keep your your house built on sand from from collapsing drink to that yeah yeah interesting <laughs> um so in, in my opinion maybe because i'm a bit more cynical so i've always kind of tended towards comic books and stories where the villain wins because those have always been funny for me mm. um inspiring where sometimes you can do literally your best you, you build you grow 
and then you still lose. And it's always interesting yeah. to see how, how it's handled. Yes. Where I think that's kind of where we're finding ourselves right now in, in, real, in reality, in human nature, is I think we're, we're failing. <clears throat> but we're doing our best, and most of us are trying. And mm. you just, I think at the end of the day, we're, we're still not there. Yeah, sometimes Superman still dies. Exactly. And hopefully that's a good lesson for us where we still continue to, to grow. Don't, don't let it make you stagnant, which a lot of people do. It's where we're at right now. It's just, I feel like everybody's like, oh, well, you know, this is what it is. This is the new normal. This the is the new, new status quo. I don't like that. I don't yeah, like the that's new such normal. a nonsense. Yeah, thing. it is. I hate it. This isn't, this isn't normal. What is normal? Normal to you is not normal to me. And I don't want it to be normal to me. I want to grow. I want to do better. I want normal to not be anything. I don't like that term. Mm. I don't like normal. I think we should all be unique. And but well, um, normal itself also like implies some sort of stasis. Like yeah, it's it, just not changing. Exactly. You yep. know, like the norm. Like it is. Um, I'm sure even etymologically, I don't know. You know what language it comes from, but it probably has to deal with some sort of like, like inert just lack of motion kind of like this is you're right in the center maybe you know that kind of thing um <clears throat> but you're right is sometimes sometimes you don't win and i don't know that it's it's not always and, it, and you'll notice i didn't use the word maybe win but i used the word sustain because there there's a lot that can kill us you know but if you if you're where you should be it will only like cause massive injury right and it's like and as much as that sucks right at least it's not death right at least you had you developed enough of your character that when you faced a hard time you didn't kill yourself you know or when a family member died you weren't fighting with other family members or you know not showing up at the wake because you were just depressed and you couldn't even pull yourself together but you you'd actually have the courage and strength to stand up and be the leader that you're supposed to be, even in the face of of whatever debilitating event it was that occurred. Um, and that's that's kind of the thing. And and also, it doesn't help that you know. Well, I talked about Superman dying, so that's you know probably one of the most depressing comics I ever read. Um, Gwen Stacy dying, and uh, that was. <laughs> I haven't read that so. <laughs> Actually, I only read that one because Superman died, right? And it was like on the cover. It's like yeah. Superman dies, and you're all like, "Well, I gotta, I gotta get this." And um, you know, they showed him like uh, I think maybe it gotten like blasted through the concrete or something. But you know, it was like a picture of that from the, the mm -hmm. ground view of the city. And <clears throat> there's, it doesn't help that we kill Superman, you know, and super women, you know. But to be fair. Um, but we do. We, we, in a sense, rebuke and chastise noble characteristics. You know, like men who are chivalrous. We've redefined as, as being sexist or uncaring or um, outdated, things like that. And, um, you know, men who are... Um, it's, not, it's not just a, a man thing. You, you, can, you can think of it anywhere. Um, that people who are, uh, who are strong... You know, and people who are strong, incompetent, attain authority by means of their strength and their competence. You know, women, women and men. Um, and so on their merits of their personal characteristics, 
they benefit and then the world benefits because of their ability to to lead and to encourage and to produce and to inspire um and people view that as like their authority as as some sort of tyranny you know or some sort of unearned privilege that they've gotten um based on their their gender or based on their race and um that's one of the things we mentioned before the show was this idea if you only view the world that a person's value is in the sense that they're some sort of avatar of a group, um, then you can just write off whole swaths of people for any reason. And, and so that's where um, some, some of these issues come up. If you say that a, a, person, a person's identity as a person is group fostered and it's just you know, basically, well, I'm a musician, so that means this, or I'm a teacher, so that means this, or I'm a male, or I'm a white, cisgendered, heterosexual male, um, and, you know, so that means I must think this. I'm also a Roman Catholic, so you just throw that into the mix, mm-hmm. and then the whole pot just starts boiling over, you know, and uh, it's like, okay, well, what what other, like, terrible things can I, you know, I live in a mostly white town, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, there's things yeah. like that, that... I think initially people had a right to to be concerned. Like you should be concerned about things like disparities between races, disparities between um, in income and things like that. Because the more income inequality there is in a place, the more destabilized that place becomes, you know. And, and that can be measured mathematically using the Gini coefficient. Is that if you have an if you have a particular locale, it could be you can measure it by street, you can measure it by um, town, you can measure it by county, by state, or by or by country. Um, is that it's actually an indicator of the crime levels that you'll see in that particular area, um, and so it's better that we reduce inequality in a way that's fair, so that way we don't end up with the kind of tensions we see now, and so I'm not. You know, I'm in no way uh, like chiding the identity politics types, but whatever it is that is your particular ideological possession, you got to be careful with it because it can get it can get resentful fast, it can get deceitful, it can it can get harmful or murderous. You know, and to think that ideologies haven't become murderous in the past is to just be you know ignorant of history, even our own history. Uh, in America, but certainly across the globe, if the 20th century is of any indication, it's like what is what is unchecked ideological possession brought except a, a, an ocean of blood and a mountain of bodies? That's all you do is you just stack up the corpses. And so, not that we were trying to have that heavy of a conversation, but um, I do think that that's 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 one thing that we just have to keep in the back of our heads is that um, we all want to advance together, you know, and. Um, it's that's kind of like the idea of like being a feminist, you know, like like a true feminist, not like uh, you know, like I want to like cut you up into pieces because you're a man type of feminist. But the the idea behind that is like, wouldn't the world be a much better place if everyone could share their gifts equally? Not saying not saying without obstacles, you know, because of course there's going to be obstacles that you know in in your position or in your field, your industry or, or your job. Um, yeah, you're going to have to have a certain education. You're going to have to have 
a certain buddy-buddy relationship with the higher-ups, so you get considered for promotion, you know, stuff like that, but it's like, well, yeah, everyone has, has something they can offer, and, you know, I've only benefited from women being in the workforce. I've only benefited from women being in the sciences or more women composers and things like that, you know, to sort of use like an old example. Uh, and that's, that's the way the world works, is that when you don't hold anyone back, be it minorities, be it women, be it other men, um, then there, there's a benefit that's attendant on, on everyone. And so I think that's, that's the goal. To get back to my original point is those are things that we're now slowly like peeling back the ubiquitous acceptance of. Um, you know, I read an article, was, I don't know if it was Huffington Post or Jezebel, it was, it was something kind of like far to the left. And the, the, the title of the article was, would you be okay if a white person cured coronavirus? You know? And I'm like, what a nonsense. And, and that's, that's the, you can only write that article because the internet exists. Mm -hmm. There's so much stuff you could say that you would never be able to say or publish. Um, if it wasn't for, you know, and it's like, thank God for the, the, the ability to pass information freely, you know, through, through the internet, you know, things that, especially truths, like uncomfortable truths that we should know, you know, that used to like only be able to proliferate through like backdoor channels and city alleys and things like that, um, you know, and, and through underground means now, you, you know, we have whatever WikiLeaks, right. Or, or something like that is freely available to everyone. Um, but at the same time, we also have th things like campaigns of misinformation, you know, so-called fake news, you might think, or something like that. Um, and things that we used to scoff at, like in the 2000s, there's a woman who wrote a book called Are Men Necessary? Right? And it's yeah. like, oh, ha, 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 like what a stupid thing to write, you know? But nowadays, someone would be like, well, when you think about it, are men necessary? Right? And it's like, and, and it's that, it's that spirit of the air that, that redirects people's thinking, you know, and, um, and influences the way people think. And, and so, you know, you can think of it like you are what you eat. And so people, they're, they're accessing this information, they're taking it in, and then they become so consumed by a, a particular point of view, by not learning how to think critically, by not having a, a sort of like, undergirding sustaining philosophy um that that properly orients them and then what ends up happening is they're like no men aren't necessary you know i hate men you know we uh, we should just keep some for to keep the species going and like that's it and they can stay in a dungeon or stuff like that and i've read that you know but but this this idea um and i thought about that for a while i read the article that was you know like are you okay with a, a colonialist white man you know that that's another sort of like uh, popular word that's being used now, but this white man um, curing the coronavirus or creating the vaccine, right? Because they were working on it at Oxford and it's looking like it's going to be uh, pretty optimistic. And, uh, I, you know, I thought, I sat with the article and I thought, what has to be going through your head? Not to just think of that, you know, would I be okay with it? But to really sit down and talk about all the horrors that you know, whiteness has, has sort of wrought upon the world. Um, I'm speaking from my Puerto Rican half at the moment, by the way. And, uh, 
and so the and like how much either ignorance or misunderstanding or hate like has to be in your heart to actually put pen to paper mm -hmm. um, or put fingers to keyboard and pen this kind of thing you know and then and then publish it yeah. and then publish it uncontested you know like gets through whoever your editor-in-chief is at Huffington Post goes oh yeah good job uh, Janine I love it you know it's like yeah let's get that right up and then I only found it because someone shared it, mm. you know? And so that means you, you essentially have this entire coterie of people that are like-minded, um, who all essentially speak in, in like a, um, like a circle in, in, in their chamber and they continue to reinforce their own views. Um, and, and that's, that's a real dangerous thing because I think when you, and, and it's simple, really, I know I'm kind of using like a lot of words, but the idea is like, if it's bad for everyone, you should get rid of it, you know? If it's, and if it's bad for most people, um, you, you need to dispense with it. But if it leads to, like, the flourishing of all conscious creatures, like, then, yeah, that needs to, you know, that shouldn't even be questioned. Mm -hmm. And anyone who, who questions it, I think, should be, you know, mocked with scorn. They should be ridiculed. You're like, how dare you going to say that? What are you, nuts? You know? And, uh, but that's, that's not the case. And so, and, and it's not the case because we don't have a, we, we don't have unifying universal values that we all follow. You know, we used to, and we don't, um, we used to sort of have like a, a golden rule that we, we followed and we strayed from it. And we know that we strayed from it, of course. Um, but it was, it was what allowed us to be sort of self-correcting, you know, we weren't following and we went behind, uh, beyond that, the golden rule. Um, Immanuel Kant had, uh, you know, he had what he called his, his categorical imperative, you know, which is basically like the golden rule, but it went a little further in that don't just do for others what you'd want others to do for you, right? Because that's, well, that's subjective, you know, because it's like, well, I hate myself right now, and so because I beat myself up every day, I'm gonna go beat up that person and technically still follow the golden rule, right? So it's not like that golden. Um, but it's the, um, the sort of this idea of do not, when you do anything, don't do what's only good for you, but do what's good for your family and do what's good for your society, not just for today, but for next week and for next month and for next year. Um, and that's a lot harder, you know, and that, that's, that's a lofty order because you have to be able to consider and to be wise enough and to discern well enough what needs to be done or what needs to be said. And this is, you know, we're all parents here. It's one of the things we struggle with um, is knowing exactly what's going to be best for my, my child or for me or for my family moving forward that's going to be ultimately best for everyone i had to deal with this last night um we had a fire next door not socially distanced and um i sent my son back here across the street back home it was like 8 30 okay shower and go to bed okay daddy nine years old and um i had my ipad on the kitchen table dining room table and he likes to play with it the ipad but he knows he can't play with that unless he's asked mm -hmm. and um, but he found a way to sneak it upstairs. And now I was at the fire, so I didn't know this, 
until I went to respond to a text that I got and I saw that it was already read. And I said, that's weird. I didn't read this. And then like, bing. Okay, he's got the iPad. Well, he's in trouble because I even told him today you can't use it. Um, and he's already like logging multiple hours per day on it. And it's like, I don't want that. You know, like one hour per day. And even that's a lot, you know, but it's like quarantine. So it's like, he, he you know, I'm talking to his friends because he's not seeing them for six hours a day. Right. Um, so I text my wife. She's like, yeah, I was under his bed. And, uh, but he's awake. And I said, well, sit him down at the dining room table. And, um, I came home and I told him, I was like, sit on the stairs. I'm going to give you five minutes. And then I'm going to ask you why, why you took the iPad upstairs. Right. Cause usually if you ask him like, why'd you take that? He'll just kind of like stare and like, uh, you're like, answer. You know, he's like, uh, um, so I said, I'm going to give you five minutes. Right. You think of an answer, probably a lie. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Yep, but, but think of an answer. So five minutes later, I take two two dining room chairs, and I sit them facing each other in the living room. And I call them off the stairs, and I sit there. Did you know what the rule was? Yeah. And did I tell you that rule today? Yeah. Is it a difficult rule? No. Is it a rule that should be followed? Yes. Is it a rule that you think you could follow easily? Yes. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the question. Why'd you take it? And he said, um, well, I just wanted to play with it, and it's, it's a habit I'm, I'm trying to break. I said, well, you're not trying to break it, but I can help you break the habit. You know, if that's the case, then then I'll help you, and we'll, we'll figure this out. Um, I didn't tell him he wasn't going to be able to use the iPad again, right? Because once you do that, they go from, like, prefrontal cortex to limbic system. Then it's just like, how did you do this? Take yeah. the iPad away, right? And then all that stuff, all that calm discussion, dialogue you're having, the back and forth, it's just right out the window. You yeah. can't reason with them, you know? So I said, well, we're going to work it out and we can work it out together. And then I said, um, you know, I ended with, uh, you know, something personal, but I said, uh, you know, buddy, I waited a long time for you to get here and, uh, and I suffered a ton. And when you arrived, I knew that life was going to be okay. And... I need you to be the best person you can be because the world needs you to be the best person you can be. Um, and without that, I lose hope. And so, um, you know, let's, let's move forward and we can do this together. And then I I sent him off to bed. Um, and that was challenging because really I just wanted to open the door and just start swinging, you know, (laughs) Not, I'm not saying I swing at my kid, right? I think I've like maybe slapped his wrist once and then apologized for two weeks, you know, but the, um, <laughs> that's all right. A few episodes ago, I'm pretty sure he sold his child to prostitution. Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. Well, in that case, I did want to start swinging. So and, uh, parenting is just challenging. It yeah. really just, it, it's hard tugs to at every single emotion you have yeah. yeah, and you have to try to put them in your own place while trying to teach your kid how to put them in its own place. And it's yeah. just, you, you, it's tiring. you know, you have to be the adult when you definitely have been on the other end. Like, well, I know how I'm going to react to this, but you're going to say it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's hard to calm yourself down too. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I was at the neighbor's house and finishing up, I was like, I'll finish this beer, then I'll go over. And I thought, I thought, you know, what if I just showed up with this, you know, I have a marble dining room table. If I showed up with this empty glass and just smashed, <laughs> you're gonna take that. <laughs> you think that would get the message across, right? You know, so we were just laughing. Obviously, it was all all fun, right. but uh, and then, but the way you respond to um, 
to a child has to have that um, that that sort of I think it's the uh, I think Jean Piaget called it the equilibrated state, which it's like you want them to know what they did was wrong. He already knows what he did was wrong, mm-hmm. so I can continue that with anger, and then we can see what planting those seeds does, or I can I can approach it from a stance of like what you might think of as as uh, what was her name? Last name was Lynn. Lynn Lang, I think, was her name, and she wrote a book called Virtue Based Restorative Discipline, which is that you focus on the positives of the person, and you say, "Okay, you did that. Was that a prudent decision? No. Were you exercising temperance? No. Right." And so, what you do is you applaud the virtues in the person. You know, it's like, "Well, thank you for being honest about your, you know, why you did it. Are you willing to work with me so we can get beyond this?" And uh, it make you know, which is only for your benefit, which then in turn benefits me. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so you know, you weren't acting in accordance with um, common virtues, and um, but I know you can. And then when you know, it's like if you if you want your if you want your child to do the things that you want them to do, then you have to make it known um, just how pleased you are when they do that thing. Um, and so the, like, for instance, sometimes Nikolai will, you know, hold a door open or I'll see someone collecting money. I'll give them a dollar or whatever. And I'll say like, you know, buddy, like when you did that, you know, you're just a little kid and like adults actually still like kids, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, we don't like each other generally, but you see a kid doing something and it's like, oh, that's so sweet. An yeah. adult does it. And it's like, get out of my way, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, you know, when you did that, like people were watching you. Right. And it's like, and, and you made people smile and that guy you gave a few bucks to like, did you see his smile? It's like, that's what happens when you help people is it's, and you never know like what kind of insecurity or trouble or, or what's going on in the mind of, of a person that may alter, um, like the way they feel that day but if you behave in that manner which you just did like the chains just get loosed you know and they feel a little freer and they feel a little happier and it's like in what you did you probably didn't even think anything of right i'm just gonna give them a few bucks right but it's like you can really that's a superpower you know that you can really affect that kind of change with someone and and change their reality um and their mental state simply by by what you're doing it also works in the opposite manner, right? And so for for every power that we have, we run the risk of misuse. Um, and the power to change someone's mood positively can be inverted to manipulation and corruption of someone's mind. And and that's, that's sort of my whole point about whatever view we have politically or ideologically or how we think the world should work, it's important that it's, that it becomes tempered um, with, like, well, with, with a just outlook of the world, which requires wisdom and, and discernment. You know, the ability to really look at something and be like, well, this is how I feel. This is where I think the, what the evidence suggests. Um, how can this go wrong? Is we, we gotta, you gotta know just how evil you can be, you know? And, and that's what I was saying before about, like, my aggressive side. Um, Carl Jung thought that he thought that the uh, the the roots of the evil uh, or the roots of the human spirit descended all the way to hell, 
you know, and and that we could also reach to heaven, right? He's, he sort of th- thought of that like like as, as an analogy, right? It's humans were like demon and angel, and everything in between, and so and if you're not careful, then that that lower part of you that we all have, it'll just take you over, and you'll become something that you don't even recognize, and you'll be like, how the hell did I get here? Right? Life was so innocent. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm thinking evil thoughts, I'm doing evil things, I'm like wishing evil upon others. It's like the thoughts in my mind are evil continually and, um, and that's, that's not something you can sustain long term. And I think that's, that's something a lot of people deal with. And they deal with it, you know, not necessarily because they're evil, um, but because they've never had someone who's like shown them the light or, or shown them how to, um, how to be good. It's something I struggled with. Uh, growing up in a cult, um, you know, dealing with, uh, a fair amount of, well, not too much death, but the death I did deal with were, were pretty big deaths, you know, and, um, and then seeing exactly that kind of manipulation and that kind of the, the ability of the person I called dad, um, you know, who, who really could have sustained me after the, the passing of my mother and, um, my, bio, my worthless biological father had already been, been long dead. I was, um, but my mom passed when I was about 13 and, um, he was someone that could have made growing up as a, um, a transplant teenager in the city of Woonsocket, you know, living with my aunt and uncle after moving out of like my drug dealer uncle's house in eighth grade, right? Like two major moves, um, you know, after like, well, you just lost your mother. Now you're going to live here. It's going to be hell. And then you're going to move to Woonsocket for high school, you know. So new city, new school, um, completely new surroundings. Yeah. And on top of that, you're in a cult, you know. And so anything that you think is wrong is actually an issue with yourself because you're not you're not praying hard enough or because there's some sort of evil in your heart or you know, you got to like pray the devil away or, or something like that, you know, like really, really twisted, um, sort of, I, I hesitate to call it a religious view, you know, because religious etymologically, that that's a word that means binding, you know, and, um, like ligament, right? Like ligio is the, uh, the word there. And it's so, you know, it's basically antithetical to what, to what a religion should be. And, um, that's not the point anyways, maybe that'll be another podcast, but, um, but it's like, there you are, and in those completely new surroundings, nothing but chaos. There's no order in your life anywhere. Um, so what do you do with that? Well, one of the things you need to do is, is find what your constant is. And for that, it was my dad <clears throat> um, who, who certainly dropped the ball in the kind of person he could have been to make things a little more stable for me. Um, it's in the past. It doesn't, you know, I, I kind of only speak of it like from a historical standpoint, not, you know, not that it's, uh, it's not something that plagues me to this day. Um, but those are, um, that is a, a, like a corrupting element of my life that if I wasn't careful, certainly could have grown into other things. And if you're not, if you're not careful with how you navigate complexity, you end up doing the thing I warned us about probably a half hour ago, which is that dispensing with the things that we need 
and adopting all the garbage we don't need, you know, and, and that's what I think is, is happening when we, you know, essentially want to eradicate everything that's good about life and, um, just keep that, which is just going to lead to our destruction. Um, it's like, it's like we continue to reap the fruits of our ancestors and then return nothing to the soil and then scorch the earth. You know, and um, and so the danger of that, not to just have one super long run on sentence, is that when those difficult times come, we have nothing in the past that we're tethered to, and so it's easier to give up. Um, and you can think of that if you think of it like like by ways of of patriotism, right? Who'd want to be a patriot now? Who'd want to like love the country now? It's like all it is is pure chaos. And, um, no, I do love the country, of course, you know, but I'm just speaking rhetorically. Um, you know, when you think of our history and, you know, a bunch of like fairly, fairly red peasants, you know, they weren't really like, uh, aristocrats in, um, up here in the Northeast and the 13 colonies, they saw something was amiss and they said, you know, we need to make this better. Um, and it's going to be a little painful, but we can do it. And then they got together and they, they wrote papers about the constitution and they didn't just want a world that was better for them, but they said like, we want a world that 240 years from now is still going to be thriving and sustaining. And that this document isn't going to be written on principles that just apply to what's happening in the world now, but are written according to timeless principles. Um, because they recognized, and they recognized this through reading Milton and Locke, that there was, there were timeless elements to human nature. And so that's why there's, it's, you want to thrive, you need to be able to speak freely. You need to be able to assemble freely. Um, you need to be able to defend yourself. Um, everyone needs to be equal, right? So obviously it wasn't perfect, but it was set up in a way that it could be amended little by little till it got closer to perfection. Um, and I love that. And I love what we've done to, in a sense, correct our mistakes that we've made. And, and, um, and so for, for all our faults, which are, which are certainly manifold, we've most certainly been a beacon of hope for those who've been destined to inhabit places that are too dark or, uh, chaotic for the human spirit to tolerate, but we are in grave danger of losing our way. And, um, and, and you can't overstate, like, the importance of staying on the right track. Um, because otherwise everything we built was for nothing. Okay, that was a lot of words. So, um, I'm going to refill my drink while, like, you guys, I don't know, change the subject to something a little happier. So, I, I think what, what we've done here on this podcast for the first season, I guess this is the second. This, this season two. This season two. You, uh, you open up season what, two. What we've really done is tried to be as funny as possible, I think, at most times. Mm. And sometimes it works. I mean, mm. I, I think we're funny. I think some of the things we've done have been funny. Things we've talked about have been funny. But we haven't really gotten too serious. Nope. And I just, I think we should at sometimes. Uh, yeah. Too much funny is a problem. Yeah, we're, we... We, we have more interest in just yeah, we're a little deeper than just than just comedy. I I'd like to think so. I I actually never even got into comedy until probably within the last couple of years. Yeah. I was more into 
political and theological debate versus anything else. That's all I talked about. That's all I wanted to talk about. And some of it was bad because I was kind of a condescending douche, um, which I still am. Don't don't forget that. Nothing wrong with that. How, uh, how else is the conversation supposed to be fun? Exactly. You, you know, it. it needs to be. Yeah, I think it needs yeah, to be passionate. Yeah, you should. Think, you should you kind of like poke people, right? Passionate. Yeah, you gotta sometimes poke the bear to get the bear to react. Sometimes the bears are just docile yeah and then it doesn't or doesn't sometimes care. the bear's reacting and you still want to see yeah. oh yeah you want to see how far yeah. you can push it there's nothing you know there's, there's really nothing like like a good zinger mm-hmm. you know i do think i do think that there's a, a danger particularly in political and theological uh debate absolutely of only focusing on the zingers right and so um i you know i'm a roman catholic theist right which basically means i'm like eyes wide open take your best shot right and uh and but even politically, right? If if you look at any political issue, like say opening the economy, right? The and you talk to someone who's passionate about either remaining in quarantine or reopening the economy, usually they have a few one-liners up their sleeve. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, if they want to stay in quarantine, it's like, well, if it saves one life, or excuse me, which family member would you be okay with killing? Right? They'll like ask like questions like that. Those aren't actually movement questions right that's not it's not because they're trying to figure out why you want to reopen the economy and and the inverse is true right where it's like well you're just a sheep and you want to follow your government or or whatever Mm -hmm. like whatever it is it's not it's not designated to move things forward you know and so i think if i think if it's going to be something like that whether it be political or theological you know it should be it, it it should have an element of comedy to it, mm-hmm. you know. Like no one just likes a jerk, right? But if right, you could be yeah, like, right. "Oh, well, what family member do you want to kill?" Well, I got a couple sisters. We right. could start there, <laughs> and they get it, you know. It's like so you, you do that, and not only not only does that, I think, well, it keeps you likable because you're saying what needs to be said with a little bit of sugar, right? And um, and but it also makes you like you can relate to your interlocutor you know it's like and if we're debating on i don't know i'm gonna guess you're not a roman catholic theist so if we're debating something simple like like the existence of god or whatever it's like it's a bit bit heavy for this one well well, right right no no i'm i'm not inviting the conversation (laughs) but but i'm saying that if if it was something like that and you know we can kind of like be cool and kind of get on each other's nerves a little bit like the discussion's over and we're best friends, right? right? And it's like there's there really is there really is something about how you how you condition your your rhetoric in your um you know in your debating style. Some people just they want to be ruthless, you know. Hashtag militant atheist. All right, there we go. See, right there's the so singer. I, I've been I've been on both sides of that of that coin, I guess, where it comes to atheism because I was I was very very religious at one point. Now I'm not, and I started off being a huge dick about it, and it was fun for me. And at first, I I really had the idea of oh I'm gonna change some some minds because I'm smarter than you, and you'll listen. Hmm. And then uh, and then at some point it hit me where I was like, well nobody cares. Like you can't change, you can't really change the mind of either side. So I was like, well let's at least make it funny. And then I realized at that point. Being yeah. funny is way better. It, yeah. it, it, people like it better. 
You know, nobody likes the the militant atheist who isn't open-minded enough to have a good conversation. I mean, I do. I mean, I love Christopher Hitchens and Ricky Gervais and their takes on it. I'm a Christian, and I love Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens is just so... so, Animated? um, Yes. Great word. (laughs) He he was just so... I just love the way he spoke and how to the point he was. and He just didn't give a shit about yeah. what anybody thought of him. His yeah. opinion of himself was all that mattered to himself. I yeah, I mean, always admired that. Yeah, the... Uh, well, like anyone else, I could I could do without the, the drunkenness and the Islamophobia and all that, but... The, <clears throat> but in terms of his... Like, I, I was a fan of his written work more than anything. Um, I have uh, God is Not Great upstairs. Have it as well, and um, it's so funny. What a ballsy title! Yeah, God, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. It's like really, <laughs> and you're like the leader of the free thinkers. How, how about this? How about uh, atomic bombs, hydrogen bombs, and nuclear bombs that just like decimate entire civilizations and de- will destroy the world over? You know, I, I wonder if they'll publish my book. <laughs> Science is not great. How technology poisons everything, right? It's, you know, like you couldn't get away with that. But that's that's the kind of guy Hitchens was, you know. And so he he would always catch your eye and was in like I think I've only well I've never seen him perform poorly in debate, but I've only really seen him like meet his match once or twice. And um, the guy knew how to debate. He knew how to speak. And like when he spoke, you listened, you know. And he oh, and he was like you know he was someone who as a polemicist just had a way with words, you know? And so there's almost like a musical quality to the way he spoke as well, and, and the way he wrote, but particularly the way he spoke. Um, he was, it was like poetic. Like he was, he was a wordsmith, you mm-hmm. know? And so, and sometimes he would have these one-liners. He'd say like, um, uh, what was the uh, extraordinary, extraordinary claims require extraordinary yes. evidence, yep. you know? And, and it was like things like that that were just like, you know, you kind of sit and be like, yeah, you know, I mean, you'd have to sit and think for a while before you recognize that we accept all sorts of extraordinary claims without mm-hmm. uh, without extraordinary evidence, um, because, well, because that's not how evidence works. But, um, but yeah, Hitchens, um, I really liked Sam Harris more when I was I, a, more I when I was Sam a teenager. Harris, yeah, I find <clears throat> Sam Harris to be kind of dull, though, which some people are turned off by. He's very monotone. He's not really animated. He just... He's to the point... He's so, like, zen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but he's highly intelligent and... Yeah, he's got, like, what? Two PhDs? One in neuroscience and one in philosophy, yeah, I he's think? he's just... <clears throat> and, uh, no, yeah. Very, very, very smart. Um, so I read... Uh, I think I was maybe 18 when my buddy lent me The End of Faith. Which um, I also own. What's that? I also own Oh, that you also own yeah. that. And then... About six years later, I bought um, The Moral Landscape. I almost said Letter to a Christian Nation. Uh, the Moral Landscape. I read some of uh, Letter to a Christian Nation, but uh, 20 pages or something, but I, uh, I didn't really get into it. But I thought The End of Faith was, was well written. Um, and I thought The Moral Landscape, have you read that one yet? I have not, actually. <clears throat> that one's not like, um, it's not like The End of Faith or like something that's really like anti theistic. It's um, more or less trying to find an objective morality in the natural world, like a morality that's valid and binding, independent of of human reason. 
Um, at least historically, it's always thought that that was, uh, you know, at least throughout Christian history, that that was tied to God's nature, um, that God was goodness, and and so therefore his moral commands um, and obligations were that which was good, and then his um, his prohibitions were evil, you know, or like or or a a privation of whatever that good was was evil. Um, and so that was like when Nietzsche declared that God was dead, um, which he didn't say triumphantly. He said that uh, we, we should expect to see a retreat from the values that Jerusalem and Athens brought the world um, and that we need to find us like values and beliefs and convictions that lie beyond us, but that are um, but that are true or at least pragmatically true, you know, and uh, that was his idea of the Superman or the Overman. Um, and then, so Sam Harris sort of goes after that, you know, and, and tries to, like in the book, he says, um, he says, you know, no one really, he, he, well, he sort of like went against the, I think he called them overeducated moral nihilists that think that there's, you know, that there's just no morality and, and nothing's objective and it's just whatever you think. And he said, you know, if and this is kind of graphic, but it's in it's published work. And he said, if someone were to hold down a screaming little girl and remove her genitals with a septic blade, the only question in anyone's mind would be how harshly that person should be punished, not whether or not they've done anything truly objectively wrong. You know, and so he laid out a case in the moral landscape. But that that was basically the point of the book was to. Um, define what was good and, and to try to find a, um, like a, uh, I don't know, some sort of like structured morality that, that we could essentially all abide by that, that didn't rely on theism, which he, he viewed as like kind of like an easy way out. Yeah. Yeah. Can you do that again? Singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arrive This is Adam Trudell. Thank you for tuning in to part one of my two-part guest spot on Family with Benefits.